everyone welcome back to extra milestone your weekly film anniversary podcast where we take a trip to the past to discover the classic films that have made the cinematic landscape what it is today i am sam noland i am your host as always and i am joined by one of my very good friends he is a pop culture writer for cinema blend frequent contributor to cinemaholics.com one third of the cinemaholics podcast main cast and just all around swell fella my friend and yours, Will Ashton. Will, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back on. It's always a pleasure. Yes, I was. I I, uh, I realized, you know, it's been it's been a long time since I did an extra milestone where it was just Will Ashton and I. We've you've been on mm-hmm. several times in the past few months, uh, and with uh, other guests. Mm-hmm. We did one with Julia Tatey. We did one with Andrew McMahon. But it's been I I, I thought it's been too long since we just had a little. Uh, Will and Sam time, or as I like to call it, and you might remember this, yeah. the Wham Hour, my favorite exactly. thing. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, you and John is Jam, I believe. The Jam Hour, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, was, I think the last time you and I together, just as this duo, was, um, I believe, Do the Right Thing and Easy Rider, which was, I, I think, a little over a year ago now, so it's been a good bit. Uh, it's... Actually, not that. We did another episode the month after that for September, which was uh, on the waterfront and do the right thing. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, my bad. And then, and we've we've done Cinemaholics, just the two of us, a couple of times. I think most recently we did uh, was when the Gentleman and the Color Out of Space came out. Mm-hmm. That was a lot of fun. Oh, I always sure. I always enjoy a little one on one time. Mm-hmm. A- and today is no different because Will and I are going to talk about three movies that might seem like they have nothing whatsoever to do with each other because they don't. (laughs) They were just three movies that Will and I kind of collectively selected at random. This is the start of the uh, milestone month of October. So we're almost to the present. I'm so excited. We're only one month behind. And we are kicking off the month with uh, as I said before, a trio of very different films. And I figure that the best way to go about this is just to discuss them in chronological order. So, Will, what say we get started? I'm ready when you are, Sam. I am ready as I'll ever be because the, the, the first film that we are discussing released in October of the year 1980, 40 years ago, the second feature film by director David Lynch. It is none other than The Elephant Man. Life is full of surprises. Ladies and gentlemen, the terrible Elephant Man. At first, you will want to turn away from him. Then, you may find him a silent, unresisting target for your ridicule. Stand up. Stand up! Turn around! Mister, why is your head so big, mister? (laughs) But if you come to know him... Have you always been the way you are now? You will begin to see beyond 
the perversion of his form. Are you in any pain? Are your parents still alive? Your father, your mother? And discover the beauty in the beast. He is English. He is 21. His name is John Merrick. At no time have I met with such a perverted or degraded version of a human being as this man. Might have assumed then that he is ultimately incurable. Yes, sir. This hospital doesn't accept incurables. The freak hunting. This is monstrous. If you ask my opinion, he's only being stared at all over again. People pay money to see your monster, Mr. Treves. I'll collect it. Yada, monster, yada. Freak. What was it all for? Why did I do it? And perhaps for the first time, you will understand the true meaning of courage and human dignity. I am not an animal. I am a human being. You're not an elephant man at all. You're Romeo. Anthony Hopkins, Anne Bancroft, Sir John Gielgud, Wendy Hiller, and John Hurt as The Elephant Man. Coming from Paramount Pictures. Now, Will, I'm very curious because I cannot recall off the top of my head. Had you seen The Elephant Man before doing the research for this episode? I had not. No, actually, I hadn't seen any of these films. So this is my first oh, really? time watching all three. Yeah. Huh. I for for some reason I thought you had seen one or two of them, but that's fascinating. Okay, so the, so this is uh this is going to be very interesting because I had seen all three of them before. So uh, we're approaching this from different sides. So, uh, mm-hmm. but but I'm sure you've heard of it, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I was telling you before we started. This is uh, I think of the three probably the most well known. Even though all three of these films are very famous and well-acclaimed filmmakers. This is probably the most well-recognized title of the three. I mean, it's been pretty well-acclaimed critically as well as uh, awards-wise. And I believe it's been brought to the stage a few times, I think, before and after this movie was made. So I, I know this one, if there's any that's been well-recognized or instantly recognizable, it's this one. Yeah. And if you haven't heard of the movie specifically, there's actually a decent chance you've uh, you've sort of taken in some of the ways that the Elephant Man has sort of seeped into the popular culture. It's a movie that gets kind of referenced a lot uh, just when it comes to telling this kind of story, which we'll obviously get into. But the, uh, you know, people fear what they do not understand. This is kind of one of the er examples of that. Uh, and also just uh, one line in particular from the movie that uh, gets referenced quite a lot, which we will bring up later i was actually fascinated to find out there are a few things that came up uh in doing the research for this episode that i had no idea about and are really fascinating and it makes it actually even more significant than i realized when we selected this film for instance and it's so this is this director keeps coming up whenever will and i uh have a conversation it always comes back to this person did you know that Tim Burton was originally set to direct this movie. Honestly, that doesn't surprise me because I was thinking back to how we covered um, Ed Wood, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, around this time last year. And it was fitting that, um, you know, this film and that film, they use the black and white aesthetic to recapture like that old fashioned filmmaking style. And I think both use it very effectively. 
Um, uh, that makes me nostalgic for how uh, film is just so good at being black and white. And then when I see digital versions, black and white, not that all of them are bad per se. Like I think like say Roma looks very Mm -hmm. good in black and white, even though it's shot on digital, but like it just something about being shot on black and white and on film just looks so crisp and so good. Like just compare a normal, like whatever other recent film that's shot in black and white to like the lighthouse. Yeah. And just like that was like shot, you know, and made to look, like its time period and just it looks great and this movie also looks fantastic especially with its uh hd digital conversion yeah i think you're absolutely right there is something there is something i find really special about when a movie now is made in black and white and it doesn't have to do with the budget like it's actually a significant or uh, not a significant a uh, conscious stylistic yeah. choice yes yeah, i think that's fun and it's oh, funny sure. because mm-hmm. my my friend uh my my friend jack um tells a funny story about seeing the elephant man at not like a you know too young of an age because it's like it's a heavy movie but like maybe 12 or 13 seeing anthony hopkins in it who plays one of the co-leads and not realizing that it was like chosen to be in black and white and thought that it was made in like the 40s or 50s and just thought that anthony hopkins was really old and had aged (laughs) remarkably well Oh man, that's like uh, that's like my relationship with like Christopher Lloyd. Like I just always thought like when they like dolled him up to like look really old in um, Back to the Future. Like I just thought like oh you know he's just like really old and he's just been always yeah. old. And I was just like oh wait no like they just they just made him look old in that movie. It's really remarkable. Christopher Lloyd was in his like early forties when they filmed mm-hmm. Back to the Future, so the makeup is incredible. Yeah, and that's that's I, yet I another Edward connection. Is uh, th- oh, yeah. that they have uh, really impeccable uh, makeup work, and I wanted to make sure to give a shout out to uh, Christopher Tucker and Wally Schneiderman, who were responsible for the makeup effects on John Merrick, the elephant. Oh man. yeah, fantastic work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, which apparently they actually made uh, th- based off of a cast of Joseph Merrick, the actual Elephant Man's uh, head that had been preserved in, I think, some museum somewhere. And they were able to get access to it and use it uh, f- for the film and uh, were able to make a prosthetic John Merrick head for John Hurt to wear, which took hours and hours to, to apply, as you may well imagine. Yeah, I mean, honestly... If you didn't know that was John Hurt and you just thought like I could see some people thinking maybe less than four, but like someone honestly, you know, especially if they're a younger age, maybe thinking that this is just the actor actor's natural appearance. And I, I also think, you know, going back to what we said uh, before shooting this in black and white, I think definitely made it look, I think, better. Not that it would have looked bad, I think, in color, but I think shooting in black and white might have uh, heightened it and like made it look a little bit more natural than it might have otherwise. So another another of the feather or tip the cap i mean to uh, (laughs) um david lynch for that creative decision yeah it really helps to create this sort of like old-timey feel to it uh and and i bet that and not no slight to the makeup artist or anything but i i i have to imagine that it if it were in color the makeup effects might be slightly less convincing and it helps that it's in black and white because uh, it makes it shine so much, metaphorically speaking, of course, mm. to the point where, and I did not know this, so this is fascinating. When The Elephant Man originally came out, it was, of course, acclaimed for uh, many reasons involving the story and stuff, but also the special effects, the prosthetics and everything. And to the point where uh, critics and audiences, just the general public at large, 
when the Academy Awards rolled around, the Elephant Man was nominated for eight awards, won mm-hmm. none of them, which is uh, which is a shame. But yeah, go figure. It happens, I, I suppose. It's got to happen to some movie. Uh, tied with uh, Raging Bolt that year, which will be oh, wow. uh, an extra milestone later on this year. Um, but they, uh, the Academy received a, an enormous amount of backlash for not acknowledging the wonderful special effects and makeup work in The Elephant Man. And that was what created the best makeup and hairstyling huh. Academy Award the following year. This is where it sprang from. I yeah, had no idea. Yeah, no, I had no idea either. Mm-hmm. And uh, a, a few other uh, just little fun uh, tidbits that I really love about this movie. Did you know that although although uncredited, Mel Brooks is technically an executive producer on this movie? Yeah, actually, no, I I did actually hear that once before, but um, I I believe if uh, you. If I'm wrong, you can correct me, but he took his name off this movie because he was afraid that if his name was attached, people are going to be like, oh, this is like a comedy, like it's a funny film. And then mm-hmm. it was obviously meant to be a very, you know, not that it's like always serious, but it's, it's a drama. Like it's a serious topic and it's treated quite seriously. Is that the reason why he took his name off if I'm not mistaken? No, you're exactly right. Mel Brooks, yeah. that was he insisted on that uh, because it was financed through his production company, actually. And I'm forgetting the name by Brooks Films, uh, which is the production company he had at the time and was a fan of the script and said, yeah, let's do it and gave it to David Lynch. And it is at this point where I must correct myself. I'm so embarrassed. Uh, Tim Burton was not almost set to direct this movie. I was thinking of the second film that we're going to be talking about on this podcast. So a little tease for that. So I apologize okay. for that. If you've tweeted at me already, sure. then I, I apologize and uh, I will take it head on. I mean, but, to your credit, though, I, I do. I could see him being involved with both of these films, although right. I do think this was 1980, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so he this is before like, Tim Burton had directed anything. Yeah, he would have been like late teens, early 20s, I believe, at that point. Yeah, somewhere around there. Yeah, because he was like 25 or 26 when he made Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Mm-hmm. And that was, I think, 85, if I remember correctly. So, it was. Um, yeah, so he would have been, I mean, I mean, obviously, films have been made by filmmakers that young, but I don't think a studio, studio film would have been. I don't think Elephant Man would have been a uh, film made by a 20-year-old, I guess. Yeah, not a, not to this level at least so right. i apologize for that little factual inaccuracy but so be it no nobody's perfect so uh that is that and um yeah it was after three years after Eraserhead came out david lynch had produced actually a lot of shorts which he still produces to this day uh animated uh shorts mostly but also a lot of live action ones many of which i've seen including some of the ones that were released this year but this was uh uh David Lynch's sophomore feature, effectively speaking. And it follows the story of John Merrick, who in real life, this character was actually named Joseph Merrick. But just for the for the purpose of clarity, we're just going to refer to character as John Merrick, uh, a man who was born with uh, physical deformities that made uh, his head very large. There were lots of growths on it. And also uh, they were they were just all over his body uh, for most of it. And one of his arms didn't work. And as a result, throughout his entire life was ridiculed for it and 
was uh, was used in a traveling circus by a very cruel and stern sort of uh, caretaker or self-proclaimed owner, which is just horrific. And uh, the movie picks up where Dr. Frederick Treves, played by Anthony Hopkins, discovers John Merrick and decides to take him in. And Treves is an accomplished surgeon at a hospital in, I believe, London, I want to say. And yeah, yes, Mm -hmm. late 19th century London. And uh, the movie just follows their relationship for effectively speaking where they sort of grow together and they you know they learn from each other and we realize that uh john merrick is actually a very sweet kind uh soul not that you know there was any assumption to the contrary but just at the time that's what everyone just assumed and obviously was made an object of ridicule and it's one of the saddest movies ever made now now will this is your first time I got to know. We've we've sort of been beating around the bush a little bit. What did you think of The Elephant Man? Did you dig it as much as I did? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I love this movie um, to the point where I, I mean, I didn't have like any expectations for like one, two, three, like which one I would like the most of these three. But if I had to pick at this point in time and maybe I'll change my mind as we discuss the other two. But um, I think this is my favorite of the three films we're going to be discussing tonight just mm. because um, for one, I mean, I guess uh, I don't know if this is just because I assume this is going to be one of his more commercial efforts, which I guess it is to an extent. But um, hmm. I was really surprised by how Lynchian this whole movie was. Like, I yeah. guess I I just kind of figured like he was like almost like a director for hire for this. Like he just kind of like, you know, directed to the finish line. But this is definitely a very Lynchian film. I mean, beyond like the obvious like moments where I think people will associate with Lynch, where it's like the beginning, like the montage the beginning and then like the play scene and like things like that. But like just his whole like his obsession with like the perverse or like the peculiar and like just like exploring that in a way that's like um, reserved, but also intrigued and like just exploring that with some sensitivity, but also like this kind of dark fixation um, that is just a theme that is prevalent throughout his uh, filmography. And I have to assume uh, that's very heavy from what I've seen from Racerhead, although I can't say with certainty because uh, uh, um, with some embarrassment, I have to admit, I haven't actually watched Racerhead in full. Right. But uh, yeah, it's it's one of my blind spots. I've been catching up on um, David Lynch films throughout the past few years. I've seen quite a few, but that's still a blind spot for me. Um, hmm. But um, yeah, this one, I mean, I don't know if this is my favorite of his, but uh, I, I definitely think this is a top three Ooh. David Lynch film for me. Absolutely. That's a good question. I was thinking about that because I'm no expert. Uh, David Lynch has directed like, I think, 10-ish movies, 10 feature films at least, uh, of which I think I've only seen four. I've seen Racerhead, Elephant Man, Blue Velvet, and Mulholland Drive. And I think that's it. To my embarrassment, I've not seen Dune yet. So maybe I got to okay. check that off of the, the old bucket list uh, yeah. sometime soon, especially with the remake coming out. But right. I think, yeah, I... This is probably my favorite, at least of the ones I've seen. So, of course, I have a lot to catch up on. And yeah, I think you're absolutely right that this is and and I saw a racer hit years ago, but for, to, to the best of my recollection, this is certainly more of a piece with that, at least stylistically, than almost anything else that David Lynch has ever done. And right down to just sort of the uh, the surreality of it all. Not that there's like really crazy things going on throughout all of this. There's definitely a plot. There's definitely a through line. It will not 
you know, sort of digress in the middle of it for no reason, but just in the way that it creates this sort of haunting atmosphere where there's just sort of doom hanging everywhere. And it's very ethereally uh, edited, if, if, if that uh, makes any sense. Mm-hmm. And I want to make sure uh, to give a shout out to editor Ann V. Coates, who did a wonderful job on this movie it's one of those movies where it takes place you can tell it's taking place over like a long period of time but it's never quite specified so it it takes on this really sort of uh uh majestic quality to it where it'll just sort of fade from set piece to set piece and it makes for a really engaging story because we're we're being told that change is taking place and and it's being reflected by uh the you know the uh, actors and everything really well and yeah yeah i was i i, I loved it just as much the, uh, the the second time seeing it and it made me just as sad mm-hmm. uh yeah i mean the only i well real quick i want to note that um mm-hmm. and and v coates probably best known for editing lawrence of arabia for which i believe uh she won an oscar for that if she didn't then i mean I don't know what the Academy was thinking, but I think I think she actually did win for that. And uh, uh, unfortunately, what was it she uh, she did win for Lawrence of Arabia. Just fact checking yeah. that right now. And uh, I believe I think she died a year or so ago, tragically as well. But um, yeah. yeah, I mean, that it, for me, yeah, that was what took me back the most was just the very Lynchian aspect of it. But at the same time, I, I, I do think. When I say Lynchian, I, I don't mean to like put anyone off if you're not particularly a fan of his style, because I know he can be maybe a little bit divisive as far as his like later work, like he said, Mulholland Drive and like mm-hmm. Inland Empire can be uh, not really everyone's thing or like the most recent season of uh, Twi- or Twin Peaks. Um, yeah. What's the uh, one? Oh, I, I always forget the name of it. It came out in like the late 90s. Um Oh gosh, uh, Lost Highway. I, I haven't seen that one, but I've heard that it's very sort of obtuse and hard to uh, just sort of grasp. Yeah. The whole as thing. well as a uh, Fire Walk with Me, the the um, Twin Peaks movie prior to the new season, is also considered a bit of a, a divisive film as well. But um, in any case, like if there was ever a David Lynch film that would show my parents, <laughs> I, I think it would be Elephant Man. Not Elephant Man, but um, I do believe my dad's actually seen Blue Velvet, so um yeah do not watch that one with your parents <laughs> yeah i didn't watch that with him but he has okay. seen it and i have seen it on separate occasions but um that is one hell of a movie i can't wait to talk about that what was that 86 so next year yeah i i think that one actually might be my favorite david mm. lynch or the ones i've seen at least but um it's a good one yeah but uh i mean beyond i mean the technical technical aspects of the film which we've already discussed as well as like the makeup and stuff i just think the core of the movie really is just the simple familiar but also just ultimately very sweet and very endearing friendship slash Mm -hmm. i guess father son dynamic between um anthony hopkins character and uh john and i mean just the absolute incredible performance that uh john hurt gives i mean just i mean beyond just the makeup he just really transforms into this character in a way that um is obviously meant to be very sympathetic for the reasons we suggested you know very sincere but it doesn't ever feel like cloying or false and i think that's really a tribute to uh david lynch's uh prowess as a filmmaker even just early on mm-hmm. is that he's able to coax so much warm and gentle emotion without becoming ever like too hokey or like corny in any particular respect 
uh, just really bringing out the sincerity of the so- of the story while also being stylistically very astute. And I mean, few directors, if any others, can really pull that off as well as David Lynch. And I think that's just a credit to his mastery, even as a sophomore film, that he's able to accomplish that so uh, so astoundingly. Mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right. I think the the word that I would use to describe this movie, particularly in comparison to other David Lynch movies, is approachable. As I mentioned before, it does. Uh, it, it's it's not intensely surreal or yeah. uh, avant garde in in the way that it presents its story. Like mm-hmm. it's it, it's not difficult to follow along with this at all. And although it does tend toward sort of, as I said before, kind of the majestic, kind of the odd uh, presentation, a little a little macabre kind of uh, attitudes sprinkled throughout, it definitely has a through line. And part of what makes that so effective, as you mentioned, is the acting. And I want to make sure to give a big shout out, not only to John Hurt, who we've gotten uh, who we've who we've praised a lot, but also Anthony Hopkins, who I think uh, does not get nearly as much credit. Uh, uh, John Hurt oh, was yeah. was uh, the only actor nominated, and rightfully so. But I think Anthony Hopkins could have also been very easily nominated because mm-hmm. what I like about Anthony Hopkins' character is that he's living in this time where, as we see, a lot of the characters throughout the movie uh, are very intolerant, particularly uh, just sort of the you know the 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 vagrants sort of the hoodlums that that are that are frequenting the london streets late at night who uh humiliate and ridicule john merrick at numerous points throughout the film he's living in this ignorant time for lack of a better phrase as we're looking back on it from a relatively modern lens and i like that at the beginning when we meet anthony hopkins he's not already like this sort of enlightened figure like he's certainly not as cruel as uh say the the uh, circus owner or whatever it's called um yeah. his interest in john at first is very academic literally he's teaching at a school uh is a professor of anatomy as a matter of fact and obviously this is a, a very unique case and so literally presents john to yeah. a class full of students at one point and, and so abnormally <laughs> sorry and abnominally, abnominally, yeah. Is what I'm trying to say, <laughs> <laughs> I like yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but what he slowly comes to realize is that this this is a very intelligent person, and this is a very uh, a, a person who's been injured, meta, uh, uh, mentally and physically, all throughout his life, and. I like how he's abrasive at first. I like how he's just saying, like, speak, damn you. Why don't you speak? And then slowly comes to realize, like, no, I've got to, you know, I've got to, I've got to uh, use, use honey rather than vinegar here to use a metaphor. And over the course of the film starts to develop this real respect for just how pure of a soul John Merrick is. And I think that is really what makes us work more than anything else. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, as I was saying before, I mean, I don't know if it's just because I've seen quite a few films that are inspired by this or if I've just it's just a such a human story that I feel like I've seen it elsewhere. But I mean, there is a, I guess, familiarity with the like structure of the story as far as like how it's approaching um, this kind of like gentle reminder of just like, you know, treat your other humans well and don't always like uh, judge a book by its cover and stuff like that. But I do think 
David Lynch um, just brings so much, like I said, uh, warm sincerity and like a sense of uh, his own style and his own sense of like almost perverse interest in this subject and stuff while never fully uh, indulging to the point where it almost feels hypocritical or like um, mean spirited or cynical in any particular respect. It's a tough balance that I'm really am impressed that even this early on in his career, he was able to achieve so well. But I mean, I guess that just Mm -hmm. shows that he was always meant to be a great filmmaker like he is. Yeah, always was, as it turns out, from from the very beginning. I like what you said just now about the way that there's a way to sum up this movie in a sentence. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a way to sort of uh, summarize it in a way that just sort of spoken aloud by itself might sound really trite uh, because it is from a certain perspective, you know, just like you know don't uh, you know treat others the way you want to be treated the golden rule there's a way to sort of scoff at that but what makes it so effective here is the way it's visualized and the way that it is sort of a, a kind of merciless in the way that it portrays just the the way how that or how I, I should say how not following that rule that old adage that we think of as old hat by now how not following that is legitimately evil And, you know, that's something that we see every day, sadly. And I think this is a movie that could really go a long way to sort of uh, to sort of educating or not necessarily educating or enlightening people, but just sort of showing a different side. It's a plea for empathy and it's a really effective one. It reminded me of a movie I really love. And I'm curious if you've heard of this, Will Ashton, by uh, director Werner Herzog, one of his lesser known movies in 1974 called The Enigma of Casper Hauser. Have you ever heard of that one? I have heard of it. I haven't seen it. It's a story of uh, not quite the same thing, but it's very similar. It's about a man who was... uh, uh, sort of, I, I, I cannot remember offhand if he was abducted or just sort of, uh, you know, born into isolation, but did not see another human being except for this one person who was caring for him for like years. I, I, I don't remember the exact number, but at least 20 or 30 years. And then one day this caretaker just leaves him in a village nearby and he has no idea how to talk, has has uh, no way of communicating, and is just sort of taken in by the village and learns to speak. And it's a very similar story of how we realize how pure of a soul this is and how shameful it is that they never really got to live their life to the fullest, to use a metaphor like that. So I highly recommend checking out that movie uh, if you haven't seen it. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm always down to introduce more Werner Herzog into my life and uh, <laughs> It sounds like if it's a good one like that one, I'm never going to be opposed. It really is. And uh, I want to make sure to give a shout out just to uh, some of the supporting cast we haven't mentioned yet. Uh, we've got Anne Bancroft from The Graduate, Mrs. Robinson, oh, yeah. playing uh, sort of a member of the like the London theater scene who shows a lot of empathy and a lot of respect towards John Merrick. And that is and and you can tell that that was very, very valuable to him. And so uh, she just, she just has this warmth to her that I think is, comes across in like pretty much every role, even when uh, she's playing, not, you know, not like a incredibly uh, nice character for lack of a better phrase. Um, 
I think that's something that she is really great at. And so yeah. definitely a fan of hers. And then also the great John Gielgud, who mm-hmm. plays sort of the overseer of the medical facility where Anthony Hopkins works. John Gielgud, one of my favorite voices of all time, uh, was a very prominent actor for many, many years and gave one of the funniest performance at least of the 70s in Sidney Lumet's Murder on the Orient Express as just the completely just exasperated, genteel English valet. So I always love to see John Gilgood in anything just because of that voice. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I did want to bring up, as you were pointing out before, um, the movie's commentary or relate or the main character's relationship with art, which I think is something that, again, I think a lesser director maybe one that was less subtle or um uh capable as david lynch could have made like the relationship between the elephant man and art a little bit like trite or a little bit like corny but um just the way it's able he's able to show like how art can bring out the inner soul of um the like less fortunate or the misunderstood it's mm-hmm. something that's conveyed um, rather simply, but also quite eloquently throughout the film. And, I, and it brings a part of some of the uh, most emotionally resonant parts of the end, which I think is one of the key reasons why it works really well. And one of the things I just ultimately wasn't uh, expecting, I guess, from the film. And I, again, I guess that is a very Lynchian touch as well, which I obviously very much appreciated. Yeah, I, I yeah, you said it all right there. I think it's great. We see uh that you know just just how much of a caring soul John Merrick is for not only those around him but just sort of the world around him and so that's something uh that we, that we can all really appreciate i think so will unless uh you had any final thoughts on the elephant man what do you say we move on to our second feature yeah i mean the only thing i would add and this isn't anything related to the film just a matter of now that i have seen um the film and i will say i mean you mentioned already that like my only, I guess, real disappointment with the film is that um, I, I couldn't have the power of that, like, I am not an animal scene because it's just been so, uh, I guess, incorporated and regurgitated throughout pop culture that, like, that moment couldn't be authentic for me watching it. It's just like, oh, I just think of all the, like, times it's been referenced in pop culture. And, like, I've even said that line without really knowing, like, <laughs> what the context was uh, in yeah. the movie. Um you know, I mean, I guess it was robbed of that power, but it's like that's only really a small scene. And that's not even like the climax of the film. That's just like a uh, very memorable, but um, not like fully uh, incorporative scene of the finale. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I I would say, you know, I mean, even if you only know the movie from that scene and think you know it just from that uh definitely still seek it out because it's way more than that that one one little scene but um yeah uh and i also i I think there could have been a little bit more i guess reflection from anthony hopkins character about like his nature with um the elephant man and just thinking back and like there's like one scene where he's just like am i the very thing that i was trying to uh avoid in the first place and that like you know he is introducing uh his friend now to the uh, medical establishment, but is he just doing the thing that he took uh, John away from? And I I think that's an interesting idea that's like brought up, but then never really brought to its conclusion, I guess, later on, that's just like a idea that spurred out and then just not really drawn much upon, uh, at least in my opinion, I don't know if you disagree with that Hmm. or not, but um, 
I, I would like a little bit more reflection on that, but it doesn't obviously make or break the movie. I just think that's something I would have uh, theologically liked to explore a little bit more. But hmm. um, other than that, I would still be very curious to see wherever the hell um, Brad Pitt or not Brad Pitt, uh, Bradley Cooper's <laughs> yeah, uh, I was gonna say. stage. Uh, <laughs> I, I've seen pictures of Bradley Cooper playing the elephant man on stage and it just seems very silly to me mm-hmm. uh and stage version but i i would be curious especially after watching the film to see whatever whatever he brought to the performance because i just can't imagine bradley cooper as the elephant man but yeah uh, especially more so i guess after watching the film but I, that was on the back of my mind watching as well I, i'm sure it's very sincere i'm sure it's okay but yeah it is a very strange thought just to consider like yeah that was a thing that happened <laughs> And so, yeah, that I guess that's just part of uh, history um, in, in regards to what you were mentioning about sort of Anthony Hopkins uh, through line. That's I actually hadn't thought about that. But now that you mention it, I do think that there is a little bit what, what, I, what I was mentioning more about kind of the free flowing nature of the plot and just the way it goes from one scene to another uh, with no real you know, uh, transition or anything. I think that's a feature and I think it can also be a bug at times. It makes the movie feel not necessarily anticlimactic, but it feels like uh, there, there could have been a little more to the ending. Like you get to the end of the movie and it doesn't really feel like a conclusion. It feel, it feels like just a little something is missing. So that's probably my only flaw. So I think, I I think uh, that you're definitely onto something with that. But in spite of that, as you said, still a really great movie. Definitely check it out if you haven't seen it yet. And uh, you'll yeah. be glad you did, I can assure you. Yeah, and um, I don't know if you've mentioned this before, if it's in the show notes, but available in the Criterion channel and also yes. uh, for free, I guess, on Pluto TV. Yeah, um, that's a uh, that's a uh, one of those services that uh, that plays ads throughout it. So you will there will be a few interruptions, but yeah, that is where to find it. And also various other streaming services. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if it's a version that's on Criterion, but I know there is a 4K version that just got released. Uh, Ooh, I saw that really? when I was doing research for it. Yeah, I believe the first 10 minutes, the 4K ver- or the yeah, the 4K version is on YouTube if you want to just watch and compare. But um, hmm. that's it's apparently out or soon to be out. So if uh, if that's available to you, definitely seek that out. Good to know. I didn't know that, actually. Uh, one last thing that I want to bring up, and this kind of blew my mind. Um I was watching the movie that it ended. The credits came up. I saw in the credits, Dexter Fletcher. I was like, what? Get out of town. Mm. Turns out, yeah, it's that Dexter Fletcher, the director of Rocket Man and the, Is he the semi, semi-credited director of Bohemian Rhapsody. He's the kid, the assistant to okay. the evil ringmaster. Yeah, because I know he was an actor before he became a filmmaker. And I think he was in some of like, Guy Ritchie's films. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean... Uh, certainly surprising, but not entirely surprising for me. <laughs> it's just the the last place I would expect to see that name show up in the credits. But that's the magic of Hollywood. So I think that is uh, really exciting. And so with that, I say let's jump ahead five years. Yeah, we didn't do to... our Lynch impressions, <laughs> but oh, maybe right. for the better. Do, do you have a Do you have a David Lynch? Uh, I can't. I didn't know if you could do one. I <laughs> I, I I know it's just like you have to over enunciate the words a little bit, and then. Um... I don't know. I can't really do it too well, but I, I, if if I find a time to to bring it up later in the episode, I'll I'll try to. But I'll I'll pre note that it's not very good. I have to admit that I've never I have not like practiced at it at all. So uh, I would have to do it. But yeah, from what I remember, uh, it's just sort of this 
very specific thought out speech pattern i sound more like, like john malkovich yeah, when i'm doing it yeah <laughs> what i liked about your uh, david lynch is that it sounded like john mulaney doing an impression of <laughs> david lynch which is quite amusing a uh, thought so what's with david lynch anyway yeah <laughs> who does that guy think he is yeah uh never pass was, up an opportunity to break out the millennium yeah impression. it's quite good you're quite good at that um yeah i was just i was trying to think of like um him directing the beginning of the film and just like <laughs> elephants are majestic creatures <laughs> <laughs> i want some nice shots of the elephants <laughs> oh my that's great i love that <laughs> That's it right there. That is the, the, the worth the price of admission. Thank you for that, Will Ashton. <laughs> sure. Like I said, still try to work on it. But I, <laughs> I thought fun. it was great. Um, oh my! And so you. on that on that high note, let's move forward to uh, 1985. And so for the second time in uh, in two weeks, we're actually going to do a Martin Scorsese movie on extra milestone this is very different from goodfellas and as a matter of fact it's kind of a very unique beast in the career of martin scorsese it is of course after hours why don't you just go home i've been asking myself that one all night long so what happened why can't you i met this girl tonight okay in a coffee shop i feel like something incredible is really gonna happen here <laughs> so when i got home i gave her a call on the cab on the way down here, all my money flew out the window. I didn't really get along with her that well. What's the matter? I said, I want to see a plaster of Paris bagel and cream cheese paperweight. Now cough it up. So I left. Gigi! So I haven't got enough money to get home until I meet this bartender who wanted to lend me the money. That's all right. That's all right. Forget it. Forget it. That's all right. Good boy. So I go back to the girl's apartment, but her roommate's really pissed off at me for the way I treated her friend. This the guy? Hi. So I march right in there to apologize. Come on. But she'd already killed herself. I was too late. Oh, wow. Lighten up. What is this? I'm in big trouble. I mean, big trouble. Now this part, you're going to say, oh, you're lying to me. Don't lie to me. But it's true. Mohawk this guy. I couldn't believe that. It's him. Tell him. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. I got to tell who you didn't do what. Help! 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 Call the police! What's with you? Are you nuts or something? <laughs> Luckily, oh. there was this girl who saw the whole thing. You're dead, pal. I'm what? So now she's the one in the Mr. Softy ice cream truck who's trying to kill me. They're all trying to kill me. I mean, I just wanted to leave. You know, my apartment, maybe meet a nice girl. And now I've got to die for it, you know? What do you want from me? What have I done? I'm just a word processor, damn it. Is that all they After hours, when anything can happen, and usually does. Is that unbelievable or what? Which is a movie that actually I did not see until just a month or so ago. It was right after I signed up for HBO Max and I saw it was on there and it's just one that's been on my watch list for a while. So I gave it a watch and was kind of riveted and panicking throughout the whole thing <laughs> and i really loved it and i'm delighted that we're getting a chance to talk about it and this is this is your uh, your first time as well so will let's just let's have it what do you th what did you think of after hours yeah this one has been on my radar for quite a while and it seemed like my thing 
uh, too. I just never really found a moment where I could really dive into it. So I really appreciated when you sent me the lists of potential titles. That one stuck out to me. It's like, okay, yeah, I think it's finally time to watch After Hours because I've mm-hmm. been playing this off for long enough. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know if I had any expectations as far as like what the movie was. I knew it was kind of like a sprawling, like night gone wrong. Yeah. Kind of like um, almost like a fever dream kind of thing. Oh, so gosh. I had... I, uh, I some sorry to interrupt, but someone uh, at the time, what was it called? They had like they had a name for this trend. Uh, yes, here it is: the yuppie nightmare cycle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which uh, there are a lot of movies like that in the in the eighties, particularly. And so, yeah, uh, this that's kind of all I knew as well is that it was just kind of a zany movie that took place over one night. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know. I always find it amusing when um, I guess actually I find it more frustrating. At this point, when people are always just like, oh, Scorsese, all he does is gangster movies. He just does Goodfellas all the time. Not even remotely true. Right. It's just like, like if you watch his filmography, he has like Age of Innocence. He has the King of Comedy. (laughs) He has like all these films. Hugo, if you want to do something more recent like that. There you go. Silence. That was a very unique movie. Of course. Yeah. Unfortunately, not a lot of people saw Silence, which is a shame because I quite liked it. But it um, is a shame. Yeah, John and I actually have a conversation about that. If you want to go back to um, Now Conspiring, I think that was one Ooh. of our first conversations. You know, it's funny. Silence. Just yeah. a few months ago, John actually recommended Silence when we when uh, him and I were talking about La Dolce Vita. So oh, cool. never a bad time to bring up that movie. I got I to gotta rewatch that one. It's been too long. Yeah, I don't know where that's... Um, I don't know if it's streaming anywhere, um, but uh, it's definitely... Yeah, If you especially if you love... Uh, Scorsese, which I have to imagine is most people. Uh, yeah. And uh, if you have as much Catholic guilt as I have, and uh, we'll <laughs> sit down and then I guess enjoy is not the word, but um, process revel. That. Yeah. Yeah. Revel. Revels is a great word for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, my biggest takeaway from watching this, especially um, coming off of uh, King of Comedy, which is, if not my favorite, then certainly one of my top three favorite. Uh, Scorsese films that like oh, I really what? just wish oh yeah for sure yeah I, I love King of Comedy and yeah. I've seen it uh, at least a few times now mm-hmm. and um, it only gets better for me but um, yeah, yeah uh, my big takeaway from watching this uh, especially after having seen that quite a few times um, is that I really wish Scorsese just did more straightforward comedies right like a lot of his movies um, like I mean even though like the Irishman is like filled with a lot of really like intentionally very funny moments or even like the, the departed or um, yeah, I know you haven't, I know you haven't seen it, but Goodfellas is a really funny movie mm-hmm. for, for a lot of it, uh, which we just yeah. talked about a few weeks ago. But even when I just like, this is, I would say like a straight comedy mm-hmm. and it works really well. Cause it, like his style is like hyperactive and like, you know, full of zips and whims, but like it just plays really well to his strengths. And he just is a very, very solid and dependable uh, comedy director, which is, you know, not surprising since he's good at everything, but nevertheless, it, it it's very commendable and I think well worth respecting when anyone can do comedy well. Because like a lot of you know experienced directors have tried and failed. Like even like someone like Spielberg, uh, you know, like one of his few misses is when he tried to do a comedy with like 1941, and you know you see like uh. a filmmaker like uh, Scorsese just you know knock it out of the park. Uh, as he does here, it's just a testament to his vast and uh, plentiful talents as a filmmaker. Yeah. And what I love about it so much is that it's a comedy that sort of derives its humor 
from a di- from a different place than a lot of comedies. It's it's uh, what is referred to as a black comedy, and what that means is that it's coming from a place that does not that they're sort of like pulling the humor out of and sort of. Uh, letting us laugh more at the movie or or, uh, rather the characters in the movie than with them. This is a nightmare situation for Griffin Dunn's character. And uh, that is something that just makes it that much more watchable throughout just watching every possible thing that could go wrong, go wrong. And I want to briefly mention or or, uh, just uh, clarify that when I when I mistakenly said earlier that Tim Burton almost did uh, the Elephant Man, this was the movie I was thinking of. I got some wires crossed in my mind. This was actually going to be Tim Burton's first movie, and it wasn't until uh, speaking of religion and sort of Scorsese's uh, versatility as a filmmaker, it wasn't until The Passion of the Christ, or no. What's the one? The Last Temptation of Christ. <laughs> I always get the two confused. It wasn't until The Last Temptation of Christ fell through it, like you know, in the mid '80s, that uh, he decided to do this instead, and Tim Burton gladly stepped aside. So I, I, I would be very curious to see Tim Burton's uh, version of this movie. But yeah, it was written by Joseph Minion, uh, and this is functionally his only uh, really significant work which is a damn shame because the the sense of humor in this movie is really fantastic and i would have loved to see more um but will i'd like to uh i'd, I'd like to sort of put you on the spot just a little bit here i it's been actually a couple months since i watched this you just watched it today mm-hmm. so why don't you uh take point here just give the listeners sort of a quick rundown of what the movie is actually about uh if they don't know uh, sure. Yeah. Um, the broad strokes of the plot um, is that we follow a kind of uh, well-to-do uh, upper New York kind of guy named Paul who uh, gets off of his day job, um, goes to read his book at a local diner, and he acquires the notice and interest of a young woman who I believe was played by uh, Rosanna Arquette. Yep. Um and they spark a little fling. There's easy chemistry going on there. But um, as the night goes on, they're just kind of oddities that start <laughs> to happen. Just like general, like things that make less sense as they go along. But um, our ample lead just kind of plays along as much as he can throughout. But he uh, follows through uh, with uh, his intentions of meeting up with this woman they just met. Uh, they spend a sizable amount of the night together. They get to know each other a little bit, and then uh, things start to take a turn for the worse <laughs> shortly thereafter. And uh, our lead tends to meet a lot of colorful and offbeat characters yeah. who, uh, as it turns out, are all sort of connected either already loosely or not so loosely, or they tend to know each other or get to know each other uh, through their mutual distaste in our lead character and then we just kind of follow through his perspective how the night goes from bad to worse over the course of several hours <laughs> in really bizarre ways too that's the thing i like the most about this movie is the way it goes from simple things like oh you know my last 20 dollars flew out the window and now i don't have any cash to mm-hmm. being encased in plaster and captured by tommy chong and Cheech Marin, who are like mm-hmm. raiding a basement at one point, right. and it and, feels completely uh, natural. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it never feels jarring in any way. 
Yeah. And I was trying to think like, cause like, you know, when I saw they were in it, I wasn't sure if it was like they would be playing off each other in the traditional, like Cheech and Chong fashion, or if it was just like, they'd be playing a little bit straighter, but they're just basically Cheech and Chong in a Martin Scorsese movie, which is just very amusing and fun. <laughs> it's like, I was trying to think like, I this movie is so tied to the eighties. I don't think you can or should make a remake of it. Mm-hmm. But I was like, if this was, if this, a version of this movie were made today, like who would that be? Would that be like, Will Ferrell and John hmm. C. Riley? Would it be like who would think, be the duo? I think Key and Peel would be funny. They're, yeah, they're actually, really no, really you uh, you're really. I think it would probably be <laughs> Key and Peel. Yeah. Um, just yeah, just for their kind of like easy chemistry together and how quickly they they play each, uh, play off each other. But um, yeah, I mean, it just uh, in addition to all the other absurdities and bizarre uh, choices in a good way that are seen throughout the film, it's just like oh, and Cheech and Chong are here, and. Uh, <laughs> I know they're not playing Cheech and Chong, but it just kind of feels like right. they are. They, they might as well be, you know? Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, the only thing, the only difference is that they just, they don't smoke weed That's uh, as far as we see. Not that we see. Yeah. I was going to yeah. say. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it does. It, it's not, it, it seems like the type of film that is easy to make, but I, I think this is such a credit to um, Scorsese and that like, a movie like that is so breezy like this and able to communicate so much and so much a of a uh, effortless fashion is really, really hard to do, let mm-hmm. alone well and consistently as this movie does. And I just kind of have to marvel at how like breezy and like flow fast flowing this movie is without ever feeling like overwhelming in a bad way or like in a sense of like overwhelming outside of like what needs to be overwhelming mm-hmm. for like the character just kind of being out of it and just like the way that is able to uh smartly connect back to each scene in a way that uh is obviously a credit to the screenwriter as well and uh and the the ample cast who is uh i, I don't know if you've mentioned uh how, who all is in this but like there's like Catherine o'hara yeah um who yeah, else terry gar shows up terry Garsh, uh, the yeah. great terry gar linda fiorentino john mm-hmm. hurd is a plays a, a bartender in this who oh yeah just who's just trying to make a deal with Griffin Dunn and it it never works out and it's yeah. just hilarious and stressful all at the same time. Right. And uh, um, so I actually cool. thought that was um at first I thought that was a guy from Full House. Uh, what's it like? Um, I forget the guy's name. Oh, gosh. I um, forget, too. Let me see. Here. But do you know who I'm talking about? Like the blonde hair guy that does like all the impressions? Yeah. Let me see. Um, Is it? Uh, it's not John Stamos, is it? No, 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 That's no. Not it's the um, Dave it's Coulier, like maybe. Dave Coulier, yes. Yes. It's, it, he reminded me a lot of Dave Coulier in this. I was just like, you know, it wouldn't be out of too out of uh, character <laughs> for this movie to just introduce Dave Coulier in a prominent fashion. But uh, alas, that wasn't actually him. But um, I could see it. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know what I can really say without like diving into spoilers for this film, as far as like getting into like the nitty gritty stuff. But um. It is just a pleasurable ride in a way that's also very stressful, <laughs> I feel like. But it feels like the type of film, you can correct me if this is wrong because I've, I've only seen it once, but it feels like the type of film that's sort of similar to like uh, Punch Drunk Love in mm. that like when you first watch Punch Drunk Love, it's like super stressful, but it's still like darkly funny, but you're just kind of like caught up in the anxieties of it. But when you rewatch that movie, it, it just becomes funnier because you kind of know what's happening. You're just paying attention more to like the silliness and like the things are just goofy and like absurd about the film. And I imagine that's the relationship one has when rewatching the film. Is that true? You know, I actually wouldn't know um, because uh, I didn't, I actually didn't get to rewatch after hours. Uh, It was because of my 
insomnia it was either get a little bit of sleep or rewatch it so i figured i've watched it relatively recently but okay. i do think that is i do think that's very uh that, that that's a very astute observation though is that i can imagine that would be the case where you're watching it a second time and having now like at that point knowing what was like what is gonna happen uh you can sort of focus on why if that makes any sense so i think that's mm-hmm. definitely a very good uh a very good thing to point out yeah the, i the, uh i apologize if i misspoke i didn't mean to suggest that you'd seen it more than once i just thought you had seen it a couple times by now so that was my bad uh, it, make, it makes sense i i speak as though i have so i guess that makes sense um the you know the movie i was going to bring this up the movie it actually reminded me of the most is uh, the movie's the two most recent Safdie Brothers films, uh, specifically Uncut Gems. Mm, I thought it yeah. really reminded me of the way that it just keeps getting worse and worse. And even when it looks like things are going to take a little turn for the better, all of a sudden on the on the flip of a dime, they get exponentially worse. And so yeah. that just lends to sort of the nightmare quality of the whole thing. So I would be oh. very, I would be shocked if the Safdie Brothers were not fans of this movie. Oh, I, I have to imagine they are. Um, especially given their love and reverence for uh, Martin Scorsese. Um, but uh, I was going to say, yeah, that, that leads me to a point I was going to have, which is that I feel like a lot of movies like this, like they would just make it that the like lead cap, the lead character is completely like hapless and that everything's kind of just happening to him, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and that he just kind of like is the 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 dupe, the guy that's just being like uh, thrown around by yeah some like unknowable god or something but like um (laughs) some otherworldly force it's the poor bastard movie but i like this movie like uh, it took me a while to appreciate this but like a lot of the things that happened to him are like the result of his bad decisions or like yes his like poor temper (laughs) or like his just irrationality and then he just kind of like has to suffer the consequences half the time um and also it's just like a lot of like like bad luck or things that he didn't know like like you know like things like um the tax fare or the um the toll fare going up like without him knowing obviously that's like <laughs> um him like those are circumstances outside of his control but the fact that like if he had just not raised his voice and like had a pleasant evening with this woman in the first place none of this would have happened yeah uh, and like little <laughs> things like that i was gonna bring up that exact thing how it's it's he's this guy he's like he has a desk job he's not like a bad guy by any means but he's he's just kind of a you just kind of a boob you know what i'm saying like just kind of a, a schmuck a, yeah exactly and just sort of gets like that one night and realizes like oh my gosh like so much there's so much potential for inconvenience just for for lack of a better word everywhere and so it's almost like uh, you can imagine this kind of thing maybe happening to a bunch of characters. This is a little bit of a stretch, but it's almost as if it's just sort of like your one night of repentance, you know, just for just for, uh, you know, just for whatever sins you commit mm-hmm. throughout throughout, you know, your daily life. I think that yeah. could be definitely a little bit of Scorsese's would... uh, Catholic mindset going uh... into this. Yeah, I would love to read the theory that like this is just like him in purgatory <laughs> and like his good or bad decisions inform whether he goes to heaven or hell. That's just like what this uh, movie is. But I mean, I don't know if that's I don't think it's how it was made, but I could see a way of like that's how like everything kind of connects together and that like there's like a loose logic <laughs> to everything. And like there's an otherworldliness to like things just kind of happening <laughs> or falling into his lap, basically. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. 
Yeah, I really love, I you, I know you kind of touched on it uh, earlier, but that is kind of the thing that really makes, it, it takes this movie from like being kind of just a funny comedy to being like genuinely really clever and well thought out is not just the thing that, uh, the things that happen, but the way they all interconnect and build upon each other. Events that seem like they would have nothing to do, but eventually they converge. And it's just, it's so, it's seamless and yet it's really, really impressive the way that it's able to do it. So that's a credit, of course, to Joseph Minion, the screenwriter, and Martin Scorsese, who did some uh, rewrites on the movie. But yeah, I think it's a really, it's a really fun time, but it's also not like the best time. You know what I'm saying? Like it's a movie that will sort of get your heart racing. And I think that there, it's good to find one of those that actually succeeds at that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I could definitely see like, I think, most people like or respect it, but I feel like you have to like really dig this thing for it to be like your absolute favorite Scorsese film, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a couple people who said that it's like in their top three. I know one person right. who's, who at the, at a point even had it as their number one. So I'm like, yeah, I can see it. It's really unusual among Scorsese's right. uh, filmography. Plus, I mean, like if this were like a lesser filmmaker, this could easily be their best film. The fact that Scorsese, I think, makes it like maybe like high to middle tier for me. But I mean, that's just like, again, that's just a credit to how good of a filmmaker Scorsese is at the fact that like, I I don't know, like I don't even know what I would consider his best film. Like I I think my favorite Mm. would, would change a lot as well. But um, uh, yeah, just the fact that he's able to just pull this off and it's just like another really good film for him. (laughs) Like he just, he can just do this and just, yeah, it's like another, you know, (laughs) it's another hit, just another film. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I like it. I would honestly, you know what? I'd, I'd honestly put it in the upper tier. I think it's that good. And granted, it's a very crowded upper tier. I think there, uh, Scorsese has made at least a half dozen of like the best movies ever made. And that's a conservative right. estimate. So mm-hmm. I think the, the King of Comedy is my fourth favorite of his. And it's in like my top 30 movies of all time. So that tells you how much of a Scorsese fan I am. And uh, I think this is this is way up there. Um I think it uh, not to draw too many comparisons to his other movies, but I think it it has the spirit that I think a lot of a lot of people appreciate the Wolf of Wall Street for. And it doesn't depress me like I can never watch the Wolf of Wall Street again. Like it's it's amazingly made, but it just ruins my day every time I watch it. And so that I can see myself going back to this movie many many times and so i am a huge huge fan of it and i'm glad to hear that uh that you enjoyed it as well yeah i mean like i said before i mean all i would suggest is that scorsese makes more comedies clearly he can still do it because he's mm-hmm. uh i mean like another film that's very funny but also very depressing is the irishman <laughs> um mm-hmm. which you know i mean uh even though like i i think more about the dramatic moments of that film when i reflect upon it um i think the comedy beats go toe to toe with most comedies uh, that are released right now. And if anything, I think it's still funnier. Like the Irishman is a funnier movie than most straightforward comedies <laughs> that, that came out in last in the last year. So yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I would just love to see more zany comedies. I don't know if he still has this in him, but I would guess that he does if he's able to still make movies like the Wolf of Wall Street and uh, the Irishman in relatively quick fashion. So, or yeah. recent fashion, I mean. 
I bet he could do it. I like Scorsese's a funny guy. You see him on, uh, not to quote yeah. Goodfellas by accident, a funny guy, but uh, you see him on talk shows and stuff. He's like really energetic, has a great sense of humor. So I think yeah. he could totally do it. I'd love to see that. And uh, I also will note, I mean, I won't give away where, but he also has a very amusing and funny cameo in this film. If you That's catch true. It. Yeah. yeah. If, uh, if you catch it, uh, I mean, you will, because it, it, it's not uh, subtle, but uh, when when it comes up, it's very amusing. <laughs> yeah, you do have to know what Mar- what Scorsese looked like at the time because it's not what he looks like now. But yeah, sure. it, it is it is uh, it is there if you look for it, and so that's always a fun time. Mm-hmm. So with that all out of the way, Will, what do you say we move on at last to our third and final feature of the evening? Yeah, sounds good to me. It is celebrating 30 years, a movie that was actually uh, eligible earlier this year because of uh, it was released at different dates internationally and stuff. It is Abbas Kirostami's pseudo uh, sort of hybrid documentary close up. which, as I said, was released in 1990. And it was released in Iran. It's an Iranian film in February of 1990. So it was actually eligible for the month that Pinocchio ended up winning way back at the at the start of this year. Uh, but it was released in the U.S., if memory serves. I'm going to fact check that real fast. But it was released in the U.S. in October, thus making it eligible for... Uh, discussion this month and of course as as we've stated several times this was your first time with this one as well so will i gotta know what did you think of close-up and also i want to ask what did you know about it going in uh pretty much next to nothing (laughs) um i was was, that's a good way to go i was familiar with the poster for it like i'd seen um you know people bring up the film i know it had a like legacy or like the fact that people have talked about and brought up the film a lot especially with uh, his filmography which um is i mean he passed away i think in uh 2016 so yeah. unfortunately um we only got a few f- i mean we got quite a few films but uh, maybe less than we would have gotten otherwise which is a shame yeah. um not not as many that are widely known over here he's been he he has directed a lot of movies going back to like the seventies, I think. Uh, yeah. So had, I mean, had a long career, not necessarily a prevalent one by our standards. Right. I mean, I think um, the one that's probably the most well-known outside of this one is taste of cherry from 1997. Mm-hmm. Um, the one I had seen and was most familiar with was certified copy, which is one of his <sighs> later to last. Still films. need to see that. I feel so bad. It's really good. I mean, especially if you love um, the before trilogy, it's similar in vain to that and, and uh, quite, a uh, enjoyable film and, and very sweet and pleasant from what I remember. And also, you know, uh, rich in its themes and uh, and mm. very uh, full of life and commentary and such. But um, yeah, I mean, he's made quite a few films. I unfortunately am not as familiar as I should be, I, I believe. But um, this was a nice uh, introduction to his earlier films for sure, because I know uh, his reputation. Uh, I believe I was looking up on, uh, I think, Wikipedia. It said like this is considered one of the like 50 best films of all time by some critics and uh critic associations which yeah is, uh, it was i i think that was the uh the sight and sound poll in uh yeah. 2012 which i mean makes sense because i mean you know uh the they they definitely have they have high standards to say the least and mm-hmm. so i was like well if um if they like the film surely it's probably pretty good <laughs> um 
But yeah, I, I didn't realize um, until I was watching it that it was this sort of like hybrid, like this sort of um, uh, like thin blue line kind of like mix of uh, documentary and narrative film to the point where it sort of almost seamlessly kind of blends into the other at times with like some non-actors filling dramatic roles, it seems like, and then like actual documentary footage being incorporated. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was just a really impressive and uh, engulfing film in that respect. And really not at all what I anticipated was going to be going in. Hmm. That's very interesting. So, uh, so I want to, I want to acknowledge what you brought up in a second, but just to sort of uh, clarify what the movie actually is in case someone doesn't know close up it tells the story of a man. Let me see if I can find his name here. Uh, and I apologize if I pronounce this incorrectly, but uh, Hossein Sabzian, I'm, I'm, positive i got that incorrect but uh was a man who impersonated a rather famous iranian film director mosen makmabaf and what he did was he entered this family's home posing as this director and they didn't know what the director looked like so they had no reason not to believe him and just sort of assimilated himself into their lives, into their home lives, uh, saying like this house would be a wonderful shooting location for my next film and was just posing as this famous film director and along the way ended up sort of uh, embezzling them out of money and causing them to, uh, you know, to alter their house in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise. And eventually a reporter, uh, let me see if I can get the name here uh a reporter catches on to this and arrests the man under under charges of fraud and what we see is the actual hearing which they filmed and uh just which they did just for the record especially because it was connected to cinema as an art form and what we see is the actual film uh, filming of the trial and everything around it is sort of restaged in a fictional way, sort of the events that take place that they go over in the trial and everything. And it becomes this really fascinating story about this guy's motivation, why he did it. And uh, you know, if he would do it again and how everyone reacts to it. And it ends up being this really reflective movie about sort of, the function of not necessarily film itself, although that certainly plays into it, but kind of the role that artists play in our lives and in the way that we interact with them. And it's a movie that has impressed me immensely both times that I saw it. Uh, I, I watched it years ago in college. I can't even remember why. I just sort of, you know, was going through a bunch of the classics and this was on at the time Filmstruck, uh, rest in peace, and uh, was delighted to get to revisit it. Um, Will, I was, I'm very curious. I wanted to know, uh, did you have sort of the same takeaway that I did when it comes to sort of the self-reflexive commentary on how we sort of uh, for lack of a better word, we sort of fetishize the artist and their process and are willing to indulge a lot of it. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I do believe that was uh, the intent and the way that's communicated mm. is very effective. Also, not being like too much of a point where it feels like it's just solely about that. It's, it's able to communicate the humanity of the story and the real like uh, simplistic uh, 
earnestness, I guess, of the uh, people involved in a way that is, like you said, kind of like reflexive and uh, natural, but also like there is a like performative element to it that adds a few extra layers to it that that adds and uh, um, develops the themes and commentary of the film in very intriguing and uh, um, meaningful ways, I'd say. Mm hmm. And I think uh, what you were saying about sort of the performative element of it, uh, as Will said earlier, the the vast majority, if not the entire cast, is played by actors who who were actually involved in the events that we're seeing dramatized. And this is not even that long after the events took place. Um, so it's actually, it's almost a spoiler alert in, a, in and of itself. We know that this guy's not going to go to jail because we're seeing him in the movie. Um, but it it adds just this other layer of nuance to the idea that, yeah, film is used to sort of construct stories right before our eyes. And you can tell that that is kind of what this what what this character, this uh, person impersonating a famous director has sort of keyed into how the art of cinema by showing us something, by visualizing everything, by sort of transporting us to a world, it kind of when when you find a movie that understands you, it's it it feels like a miracle, you know what I'm saying? And obviously, everyone has different experiences when it comes to this. Uh, th- these are the kinds of things that we hear him bring up in the trial, the way that this director really spoke to him personally and to get to live as that person, even though it was all, you know, all fake, all a lie that was that was kind of fulfilling and really and a really definitive experience and as the movie goes on we start to understand that this is not a malicious person as i think a lot of the people involved may have assumed at first and so it's it's sort of a flimsy connection but a connection nonetheless uh, to the elephant man i think it's another one pleading for empathy for this specific person saying like let's just hear Let's just hear this side of the story, you know, like this is uh, this is unusual to say the least. And uh, and I think it's really human in that way, even though like this guy did, uh, you know, commit crimes to technically speaking, uh, there is a fraud and perhaps even theft involved. So I like that. Uh, the man has no illusions about that. It's like, yes, I did, I did wrong, and I and I'm remorseful for it. So there's there's a dignity to this movie, and there's sort of a willingness to understand that makes this movie really wholesome, and at the end of the day, kind of heartwarming to watch. Did that did that uh, come across to you at all, Will? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I really didn't know what to expect going in, and so I, I was just ultimately very taken and uh, appreciative. Of the movies, very simple but elegant graces throughout, and also obviously just the the fact that like it's not even like the biggest trial. It's just like kind of like a like more of a like oddity trial than like anything else that that happens mm-hmm. throughout the film. But um, our filmmaker here, uh, Abbas, uh, you might have to help me pronounce the last name. Um, yeah, Abbas uh, Kirostami. Kirostami um, is able to find the like I, a lot of other directors i guess could have communicated this in a somewhat like humorous or ironic fashion and like kind of just like oh look at this weirdo like pretending to be like somebody he doesn't even know and like doing all stuff but there is like 
through his very sensitive but inquisitive lens is able to communicate and uh, search for like what is exactly the motive behind this guy and like what what what's going on to inspire him to do this? Is it something that's just like very simple that just got out of hand, or is there like a like more more uh, um, intensive drive, I guess, to define something or to seek something that seemed unattainable to him before, and then using acting as a means through which uh, to find that as a a very intriguing uh, prospect definitely for a film, especially in that one scene fairly late into the film where like the judge is like, basically just like, are you like really more of a um, trying to like want to be filmmaker? Are you more of like a want to be actor at this point? I'm I'm very much butchering the paraphrasing, but uh, the, 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 the the, um, layers, I guess that scene really come to the play when you're like knowing it's a, reinterpretation or reimagining or redramatization of that while he's also like communicating that earnest drive while also acknowledging that's like, okay, this is like a film and that they're like just trying to create this. But at the same time, because it is a film, is he actually succeeding in what he's trying to do? It's just like these weird kind of uh, layers to it that just uh, result in just, I, I think it's just a really fascinating film in a lot of different respects. It really is. And we could, we could of course go on about, this forever but there are a couple things uh, that i want to bring up specifically one i really like what you said about how a different director uh, might have might have sort of preyed upon just the weirdness of the situation a little too much and i think there's an element of that here particularly in the courtroom scenes we see there's just sort of this subtle element of like is this really happened like what what's the deal with this case what why are we why are we focusing on this but of course they do have to take it seriously and so that slowly wanes throughout the movie and so i think there's a that that's just adds to that dignity that i talked about how at by the end of the trial they're they're trying to seek out the humanity in it rather than as i said prey on just the bizarre nature of it and so i really appreciate that a question i had for you will uh, that i wanted to ask is that as i said before the movie is sort of told in a little bit of a flashback structure where we see interspersed throughout the trial scene uh the the uh, recreations of the events leading up to it and these are of course this is the staged part of the movie where they were acting out what happened I wanted to I wanted to know what you thought of that structure. Do you think that it helped to sort of jump back and forth or do you think it hampered it? Uh, what, what, what did you have a thought on that at all? I didn't think it hampered it at all. It, it took me a little bit to like kind of figure out how I was going about it. But I, I think there is like intentionally that kind of uh, that dissonance, I guess, that that sense of like trying to kind of figure things out as they're going along. So it didn't bother me in any particular respect. I think it definitely helps that uh, Abbas Kurostami is very deft at making it really seamless. Like, all the, there's a slight visual contrast. It, you can tell that the camera they used in the trial was not nearly as high quality yeah. as a little the bit one. more polished, I guess. It's, it, yeah, in the flashback scenes. Yeah, it's 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 you can you can definitely tell it's there, but it also uh, is very believable in the way that they you know that that's actually a plot point where they're asking people at the courtroom, like, Hey, can we film this? Uh, and so it all fits together. So it's really seamless the way it does that. 
And uh, I think for the most part, it does work. I think the jumping back and forth, it really uh, lets you see sort of like, you know, how it came to be and then contrast that with the aftermath, sometimes in reverse order, like we'll see the aftermath first and then what happened before. So I think it's really effective to getting sort of a different perspective on the story. And of course, having seen this before several years ago, uh, it was all the more interesting to see it work out that way. There are a couple times, specifically uh, the ending, where it feels a tiny bit anticlimactic, but also there's not really a climax to reach with this movie. You know what I'm saying? So uh, I think it does work at the end yeah. of the day. I mean, there is like, a, I guess, a slightly manufactured uh, climax at the end, but I don't think there should have been anything more beyond that because it would have felt insincere or false. They try too hard to uh, create some sort of like cinematic conclusion, unless there was some way to connect that to the themes of the film, but it didn't seem like uh, Abbas really wanted to. So I, I think the way they approached it, well, I, I can understand like if, if, uh, if he found it maybe a little bit underwhelming as far as like a end to the film, but I, I feel like his style is so intentionally kind of naturalistic and uh, refined and um, observant to the fact that it's just like him just trying to find the, uh, the core humanity of these stories and just like what, what makes these characters tick and like how they express themselves and who they actually are and stuff like that is a, just such a key factor of the films of his that I've seen, which are admittedly quite limited, but nevertheless seem to be uh, reoccurring themes throughout his film. So um, yeah. I, I definitely think it's a, a sweet way to end the film as it is. My only complaint with the ending is that they should have brought back that dang can. I wanted that <laughs> yeah. can back. There's a can that's like rolling down the street in a couple of oh, scenes. Best character in the whole movie is that can. <laughs> I love the can. Um, and I mean, I'm not being flippant. Like, I, I sincerely love the fact that there's this can that's like, we just spend like, I, I would say like maybe like two minutes just watching it roll down a hill um, in total throughout the film. Um, uh, I would be fascinated to hear any theories of like what the symbolism of that is, or maybe they just accidentally kicked a can at one point and decided to film it. So it I could know, be cause, anything. Cause like, I, I just love that. Like, cause like when they, they show it at first, I'm like, okay, it just, maybe it's just a, um, you know, just a, a thing that the director is fascinated on. But then when we see our like reporter character get so excited and like kick the can, <laughs> I'm like, okay, there's clearly like something symbolic. I think about the can, but I just don't really know what it is, but <laughs> it amuses me nonetheless. Yeah. Send, send us your best theories. If you've seen close up on what you think the deal is with the um, can, I'd be fascinated. To yeah. Send us uh, your belated Halloween costumes as a can. <laughs> uh, I know it's the hot item for Halloween this year. <laughs> 30 years later. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Uh, so, so, you know, speaking of the filmography of Abbas Kiarostami at large, there is a, a, a movie that I don't get a lot of chances to recommend, but every time I do, I make sure to seize the opportunity. Is a movie that was not directed by Abbas Kiarostami, but it was written by him. It was released in the year 2000, and almost no one has heard of it. And, it's, and indeed, it's actually kind of impossible to find, so it, it might be kind of pointless to recommend this. I saw it back on back in the film strict days. It was on there for a brief period. It's a movie called Willow and Wind, uh, and it's actually a movie that structurally is really similar to after hours in the way that it's sort of an intensely stressful, just 
day in the life of someone. It is about a little boy in Iran who accidentally breaks a window on a uh, in a school building and you know someone working there says, "Well, you've got to replace it. You got to go down to this place and get a new pane of glass and then bring it back and put it in." And it's just the journey of this young child just going about doing that and it just so happens to be the day of a very harsh and windy storm and of course you're dealing with a large pane of glass it gets really stressful and it's incredibly empathetic and just really really remarkably suspenseful and well done so i i don't know where it is i don't even think it's available anymore but on the off chance that anyone listening ever gets the opportunity to see that i can't recommend it enough because i really uh, i really really dig it well i was just going to say i mean the film that i was reminded of a lot watching uh close up was uh this is not a film i don't know if you've seen that but it's another Iranian film that uh, I believe was directed by uh, Jafar Pahani. Um, it came out, I believe, in 2011. And mm-hmm. that film, it's a, it's a similar film as far as like exploring the relationship between um, film as an art form and then film as like a political tool as yeah. far as like acknowledging like the ways in which we can use film to give a voice to people who can feel powerless or without a voice or just finding empathy through film. But that one is like a literal memoir on film in that like it's it's him just finding his case and like trying to uh, establish his uh, sense of morality or innocence in a way that's uh, like it feels very intense because it's obviously like a film that like is not meant to exist under the government regulations. That's why it's called this is not a film. Um, but uh, that was a film I kept thinking back on when I was watching uh, close up. So if you get a chance to check that one out definitely worth your time yeah that's another one of the ones i've just i've heard the title so much i know it's a recent classic and just haven't gotten around to it so i gotta make sure to uh add that to the old watch list that is constantly constantly growing um but yeah will unless you had any final thoughts on close-up i think that's our show and i think it is about time to sign off what do you say i would agree with you Cool. So with that in mind, Will Ashton, why don't you let the listeners know where can they go on the internet if they don't already know, where can they find you? Sure. Um, well, you can follow me on Twitter at the Will of Ash. Um, just my general thoughts and musings and uh, general uh, where withouts, I guess, <laughs> wherever you, uh, whatever I'm doing or feeling or thinking, I guess you can check it out there. But um, work wise, I, I write for Cinema Blend. That's my my day gig. And I also write uh, for cinemaholics.com. And also I do the main podcast, Cinemaholics, with uh, John Negroni and Abiel Jesse. So you can mm-hmm. be sure to check that out if you haven't already. But I'm assuming most people who listen to Extra Milestone are already queued into Cinemaholics at this point. I would assume so. But you never know. There may be there's a there's, you know, every episode might be someone's first. So I think. Yeah, that's true. It's always good. I'm also on Twitter. I'm on a little bit of a hiatus. I don't know how long that's going to last, but I am on there at Nolan Sam. Uh, That's pretty much the same deal. I host this show every week and two others on the Cinemaholics Patreon account for as low as $2 a month. You can hear Adonis Gonzalez and I review every Alien and Predator movie with Game Over, man. And review every episode of the classic Twilight Zone TV series on A Nice Place to Visit. So come on over, check us out there. It's a really fun time. We hope that you'll join us. And with that, I believe that is all we got. From the Internet Colorado, I'm Sam Noland. 
And for the internet of Pennsylvania, I'm Washington. And we'll see you on the next Extra Milestone. See ya.